0: grateful grateful that you are who you are you are worthy to be praised it is good to be here this morning join with a few hundred voices in this service and bless your name strikes a chord in my heart in our in my spirit in our spirit to do what we're created to do thank you for the privilege of doing that privilege of doing that uh, in freedom here Thank you for those that uh, made that freedom possible uh, by their sacrifice. Pray for those that are serving even now in harm's way to fight for freedom. Soldiers abroad, families at home. I just pray for protection and reunite them. Ultimately, we are here celebrating the freedom that Jesus Christ brings. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And we're just a uh, little microcosm, one of the some 300 cells that are meeting this morning uh, across all of Anchorage. People gathering in small groups, large groups, under the name of Jesus Christ to give you the worship that you are due. There's one church in this city, the Church of Jesus, and we're glad to be a part of it. I'm asking that you, through your Spirit, your Holy Spirit that is carrying out The plan of God. Your spirit that lives and dwells in and works through the followers of Christ. That spirit is alive and well. Active and engaged. Real and seen. Thank you for that. And we're asking you, even right now in the next hour, to do that right here. That your spirit would move in power in fact God I'm asking you to do that all across the city in these houses of worship Just bless them meet with them send the truth out in power in each of those locations including here speak a very specific word I'm asking you to do that for us what we need to hear do a work have your way reveal your glory exhibit your excellence right here in this place today I just want to ask you still in an attitude of prayer there would you just take a moment just a moment of quietness talk to the Lord in your heart and just tell him that you want to hear from him today today You want to meet with him today? And here's what I would encourage you to do. Tell him that what he says to you, you'll obey. What he asks of you, you'll respond. I think the revelation of God comes to willing hearts. So tell him about your willingness and then expect him to speak. So we're trusting you to do that. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. may be seated. We have the privilege of having one of our resident missionaries uh, on furlough here at the church, attends our church, Mark and Joan Bowman. Mark is here. We scheduled Mark to preach two or three months ago, Uh, knew that he would be here and and he's been in the pulpit two or three times, and it's always a blessing uh, when he does that. If you've been here for the past three or four months, you've been aware of just a theme that we have been working on related to the Spirit, teachings that we have walked very extensively through. And, and Mark called me uh, a few days ago and said that he led by the lord feeling the leading of the lord to complement that and do something a little different at the end of the service today and we've talked through that and I'm excited about it God did some neat stuff in the first service I'm anticipating that he'll do the same in this service Mark come
1: Good morning I have to laugh. I do this a lot in Asia. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just want to acknowledge this morning, God, that your word says without you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, we just invite you to come this morning. And Lord, we want you to do great things, Lord, not because we are great, but because you are great. And you want us to share in, 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 in what your work is. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use me this morning. God, speak to your people. Bless them, God. Do great things, Lord, because you are a great God. And I pray this in your name. Amen. You guys all watched the Olympics. I'm sure many of you, if you absolutely hate it, you wouldn't have. But for the most part, most of you did watch it. Ironically, it was the most watched television event in the history of the United States. They don't keep statistics on the rest of the world, but uh, they did on the U.S. televisions, and so the Olympics was a big event. NBC was very happy. You know, it's kind of interesting, when you listen to the announcers, you know, before the event comes up, you'll hear them talking. And you'll say, well, we anticipate the U.S. team in this particular event will get a gold or a silver or won't place. Or... And so you'll hear them as they start to kind of go down and, and case over the events as they are getting ready to take place. And so you kind of have a chance to get a feel for what you're expecting from them when they, when they compete. And so you're all excited and uh, I mean, I love the Olympics. I'm, I, 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 I'm ashamed to actually admit that I watched too many hours of it. My wife actually was like, are you watching that again? And <laughs> so I'm over there watching it. And I'm like really into it. You know how those parents, the leaning parents, you guys saw those guys? They were really leaning. Well, I'm a leaner. I'm like, no! I'm yelling from my wife. She could hear me from the other room. No! So I'm screaming. I, was there. I, I expect one thing and it doesn't happen or... Somebody crashes, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh. Years and years of investment down the drain. For a split-second bump, split-second, thing goes wrong, just a momentary hesitation at the starting line, and instantly four years of effort, and you're not going to make the finish line first. You know, it's interesting. Even athletes have expectations. If you ask them, they'll they'll oftentimes stick a mic in their face and say, so tell me, what do you think is going to happen? You'll use, and so you know, they're not going to say, I'm going to get last. They're not going to say that. They're going to tell you, I just want to get this gold. And they've got, they've got moments that they've kind of rehearsed in their mind. In fact, you, uh, sometimes you can just envision that um, they have envisioned in their mind standing on that podium. And they envision their national anthem playing and the flag being lowered, or raised, actually. And uh, if you're Serena Williams, it was lowered, but everybody else is raised. And, uh, and they anticipate that guy leaning over as you tip and he's, he puts that gold medal around your neck. So they're, they're, they're envisioning that happening and, and it drives them. I mean, they literally will drive themselves for years. I actually attended, uh, Northern Michigan university in the upper peninsula of Michigan in Marquette, and it's an Olympic training center. And, uh, so a lot of the Olympians train there because it's for winter sports if you don't know that. And then they go to college there at the university. So, you know, every so often you bump into somebody and you're like, man, he look really familiar. Well, I was sitting next to a girl for the whole semester in one of the hardest classes I ever had. It was an assembly language class for those of you who know programming. It was a bear. It was the worst grade I ever got in the whole, my whole time in college. So she sat next to me and she always beat the pants off me when it came to grades. Every time we did a test, she did, got at an A, I got a C. And I just... It irked me. I don't know why. I just did. And so I was just talking to her and we were chewing the fat one day. And I didn't really pay attention to her, but she was kind of short, blonde. And I noticed she had these really powerful legs. And uh, so we were talking one day, and, and uh, she's, I said, so what, do you, what brings you to NMU? And she said, well, I'm, I'm a training for the Olympics. I said, really? I said, well, what are you training for? She said, well, I'm a, I'm a speed skater. I'm like, wow. I said, are you any good? <laughs> The look on her face was priceless. It just was like, you could see the look on her face. I mean, I sat next to her the whole time. I had no idea who she was. She said, I'm the reigning women's U.S. champion. Oops. (laughs) Well, then when the Olympics came around the next year, she won four gold medals. So it was kind of ironic sitting next to her, not even noticing it. But in Corinthians, I'll just read this to you. 1 Corinthians 9. You don't have this, but I just want to read it to you. Um, and I didn't put it up on the overhead. You do, not, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, do not run like someone running aimlessly. Now, when I read this scripture, I got to tell you, this brought back memories of some things, you know, kind of going with the Olympics, but I used to be a really, I used to do a lot of running. You'd never know it now. But uh, when I was in the young 20 ish age, I used to run a lot. Now I didn't even do it because I liked it. The truth is I only did it to make my wife like me. She liked to run and I wanted her to like me. So I figured if I ran, we would have time together. So my motives weren't exactly pure. So she was just a, she would run for, you know, eight, nine miles, drop of a hat. I hated that. It just killed me, but I liked her, so I thought I'll run for, for her sake. So after we got married, she just assumed that would continue. Well, I wasn't really interested in that, but I had to do it because it's what you guys got to do. So we used to run in these big races, usually 10Ks type thing, the Governor's Cup, Bloomsday, since Spokane. Well, the Bloomsday race is the, at the time, it was the largest timed race in the world. 37,000, I believe it was. I, I, I don't remember. Honestly, it's been so long. But it, it, literally the whole city shut down. They would block off all the streets. And they, the, the runners, there were so many people that it took up four complete streets. And then what they would do is they would have a helicopter that would fly over and with a long cable and literally a charge of dynamite. And it would fly over the city. And then when they set off the charge, boom, the whole city would just shake. And then all the runners were like, off they would go. Well, you can imagine, you know, 37,000 people. Well, if you're way in the back and the the, the dynamite goes off, it takes, my wife, it took her three or four minutes just to get to the starting line. So, you know, we've done that for a few years. And one day, one year, I got this wild idea that I wanted to be, this year, I wanted to be in the very front. I wanted to experience the front of the front. And in order to do that, you're supposed to be able to run really fast. And based upon how fast you run, you get these numbers, you know, that they put in the front of your shirt. And if if you're blue, that means you're like the super guy. You can run really fast. And then they have white and then all these other colors. And my wife was always in the other colors. But I wanted to be a a blue. Well, you know, we had to make an adjustment on our application on how fast we ran... (laughs) So that we could get the blue. Obviously, I didn't even qualify, but I figured nobody would know, and it'd be kind of fun, and so, you know, anyway, yeah, I'm really fast. You know, we sent the application in, and I got my little blue number. So my friend and I did that. So we arrived really early, and it's so cold, we actually have to wear garbage bags because we're just, you know, so we, we, we plan ahead, we wear garbage bags, black garbage bags. You can see us, we look like ridiculous. But everybody looked at, everybody that came early wore garbage bags, so nobody cared. And we didn't want to just wear a coat and then throw your coat or your sweats off on the side of the road. We figured we'll wear garbage bags and then pitch them. And the plan worked pretty good. But you stand there for hours and hours, and I'm holding on to the starting tape. And then as time came and people started filling in, they began to fill up behind me. And pretty soon they were, you know, kind of pushing up, and we're getting up close. And I've got this tape in front of my hand. And in front of me is rows and rows of people, literally thousands of people. And I'm, I'm holding the starting line. And I'm like, you know, this is what I wanted. This is going to be great. Now, there's four streets wide. And so they're actually a little bit staggered. So we're really in the front. And the next one behind it, and the next one behind that, and the next one behind that, it's four streets wide. The, uh, The idea is when the dynamite goes off, two streets merge into one, and these two streets merge into one, and eventually the other two merge into one, and we're all one long column running, all heading for the same direction. Well, as I'm holding this tape... And about 20 minutes before, we ditch our garbage bags, we're holding this tape, and people are just jammed in behind me. A bus shows up, and out of this bus comes these Olympic world-class runners with all their high-tech garb and their superhero tennis shoes and, you know, and all their nice gear. And we look hideous, you know, we got... We got these, you know, old beat-up gym shorts, you know, and some old raggedy tennis shoes. And these guys have, they look the part. Their muscles are rippling. They are sleek. They are machine, well-oiled machines. You know, and I'm holding the starting line, and I, and it's obvious we don't look the same, and we don't, we're not. <laughs> and they bring in these world-class runners, and they're all, you know, kind of jogging, warming up a little bit. And I've been standing here for hours. And finally, they bring them in. And, they, and they, they get them, and there's a, come to find out, I didn't know this, but there's really, the, the real starting line is, like, right up there. So they drop our line, and, and we have to walk up to the world-class athletes. And now I'm, right, I'm like, this close to them. We're right here. And they're, we're actually up there. So they actually, I didn't realize that they make room for them. They don't make them come early like everybody else. And these people are sponsored by Nike and by all these clothing companies, and so they've got everything. And so you know they're they're just they're you know they're ready to go. And so we get up there. Now what happens is there's a truck that that backs up and it's it's loaded with uh, cameramen, uh, reporters, sound equipment, tripods, photographers. It's packed full. It's just a pickup truck, and it's facing away from us. And everybody's in the back of the truck and they're crouched down and they're trying to take pictures so that when the dynamite goes off and the race starts, they can get camera footage of this mob running towards them as the truck drives away. And so I'm, I'm standing here. We're, we're piled in with all these world-class athletes. <laughs> the driver must have took to heart what it said in that little mirror. Things in the mirror are closer than they appear. Because the instant that dynamite went off and the rush of people took off. The driver put the truck in gear, popped the clutch, jammed on the gas, and disgorged the entire contents of everybody in the back of the truck. Boom! They went flying out of the back of the truck. Cameras, equipment, television, smash! There was stuff rolling this way, cameras flying that way, tripods bouncing off the pavement. These guys were plastered all over the road. The truck took off. He's long gone. These guys are standing there, and 37,000 people are heading towards them at (laughs) mach speed. (laughs) It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen These guys didn't know if they should grab their camera or run for their life. It was like, what am I going to do? So I was literally running and leaping over equipment and people and it was absolute anarchy And we were laughing the whole time. It was just too funny And these world-class athletes i'm sure they never had a race like that They're just leaping over stuff. Suddenly it's the hurdles instead of a, a sprint well I'm, the expectation that we had of this experience, of the, of the mob cheering us on as we ran down the, uh, down the raceway there, everything was fulfilled in every way. The, I didn't expect the truck incident, but everything else was going my plan. But as I'm running past this equipment pile all over the road and people that are scrambling for their life, I suddenly came to the realization that there's 37,000 people behind me that are faster than I am. And all of a sudden, it occurred to me, I'm going to get trampled to death. I'm going to die. And I was started to run like I've never run in my life. Like, my God, what am I going to do? And I ran so fast. I don't know what happened, but I literally was just running to save my life. It had nothing to do with my expectations of glory, of trying to see all the people as I went racing down the road. No, nothing like that. I, was, I saw another race where... The driver, or the, the the guy in the lead, the truck, um, didn't didn't throw everybody out on this particular incident, and the truck was going on the road, and the guy's running, and uh, the cameraman was showing this guy the whole time, and he's running the most of the race with his truck filming him. But as he got up to the finish line, the uh, driver did not want to cross the finish line because there's tape there. So the driver turned off the side of the road to get out of the way, and the runner followed the truck off the road. <laughs> And so, you know, all of a sudden, there goes the leader off to the side of the road. And all of a sudden, we're like, where's he going? And so people literally ran out in front of him and stopped him and said, you're going the wrong way. And, of course, he got past and everybody else ran past him. Not what he expected. When Jesus came. It just wasn't what people expected. The Pharisees knew what the Bible said. They were experts. But Jesus did not look like them. He didn't dress like them. He didn't talk like them. He didn't act like them. He didn't even eat like them. Jesus did things that blew their expectations out of the water. They expected A a, a Messiah coming on a white horse to conquer. He shows up on a donkey. He's eating with sinners. He doesn't seem to fit the mold. Everything that they did, they couldn't put the two together. Their expectations were so different than what God did that they couldn't reconcile the two and they rejected him. And it cost them. It cost them. You know, it's kind of interesting. Even the way that Jesus prayed was different. He didn't even pray the same. He prayed as one with authority. That's what the Bible says. The Jews wanted a uh, somebody, a Messiah who showed up that gave signs and wonders. The Greeks wanted somebody who had great knowledge and wisdom and kind of marvelled them with his great thinking. It wasn't either. Jesus showed up and was a friend of people that nobody dreamed what a Messiah would be interested in. The expectations of everybody was completely undone. You know, it's kind of interesting. When Jesus called Peter and said, Peter, we, uh, we, we have to pay taxes, right? You know, he goes through that little story. And he says, uh, Peter, I want you to go and catch a fish. And the first fish you catch, open its mouth and pull a coin out of its mouth and pay our taxes with that. Now Peter had caught lots of fish. In fact, I'm sure he saw his friends catch thousands of fish. God could have had an angel show up with a bag of money. God could have had somebody show up and give an extra in the offering. Nope. God chose the very thing that Peter was the most comfortable with and said, "I want you to do something you have no idea what you're doing. I want you to go fishing." And pull a coin out of a fish's mouth. Now you can imagine, it didn't happen instantly. I'm I'm sure, you know, Peter's got to go and get the boat. He's got to get his gear together. He's not going to go alone. He's like, hey, I need you to be on the till. Let's go out fishing. The guy goes, well, you know, we're going to throw the net out, right? No, I'm going to throw out a line. He usually fishes with a net. Nope, we're going to use a fishing line this time. Now they didn't have spin casters, and I'm sure they didn't have. uh, All these little hot, stool cool reels and stuff like that that we have now. So I don't know what he'd use, but he fished with a line. You can imagine what it was like for him as he's sitting here in the boat with a line in the water. A man who has caught thousands of fish. And he's thinking to himself, I can't believe I'm doing this. And he gets a bubble, he gets a little hook, all of a sudden a nibble, and all of a sudden, boom, he pulls the thing in, he reels it in, opens up its mouth, and the guy in the tail is going, What are you doing? His question is, how big is it? Oh, no, I just want the money that's in its mouth. What? It goes against everything that anybody would expect, especially of all people, Peter. He's a fisherman. He knows how to fish. He's caught lots of fish. But now he's going to do something outside of his comfort zone. You know, sometimes God has a way of surprising us. He does it so that we cannot use our human wisdom to figure him out. It's just the way he is. One time, uh, my wife and I were getting ready to come back. We, had, we were leaving Cambodia, coming back to the States. If you don't know, missionaries generally are on the field for four years and they come back to the States for one. And then we travel all over the United States raising support for the work and then we go back again in four years, or for four years. We were running an orphanage. We had 140 kids in the orphanage. And you can't dream up the problems you have when you run an orphanage. I can't begin to tell you the things what we experienced. And then we opened a Christian school. And eventually we ended up with 350 kids in that. And so we have a, we have nearly 50 staff. You inherit all their problems. You've got orphanage kids. You've you got problems up there. I got two boys that were trying to homeschool And we're juggling juggling all this stuff, the finances. My wife's always in the baby room making sure that the babies are taken care of. One time we had nine babies at one time. And we're dealing with all that. And one day my wife said to me, I can't do this. I have to get help. Let's get somebody to homeschool our boys so we can focus on what we're doing. I can't just do this by myself. And so we thought this is a good idea. And so when we came home to America, I just prayed and said, Lord, we need somebody to homeschool our boys. And in my mind, I expected God would pick a teacher and that somebody would come up to me at the end of the service and they would say to me, oh, Mark, uh, I really feel that God has called me to come to Cambodia and help you. And I'm like, great, you're the person I'm looking for. And, uh, and it would, that's the way it would be. Well, no, that's not what happened. I kept waiting week after week. We would go from church to church. I would speak. Nobody ever came up to me and said, I feel God has called me to come and help you in Cambodia specifically to teach my boys. They all want to work at the orphanage. And so I waited and said, God, what's wrong? I know that this is what we need and you know, this is what we need. And I just kept expecting God to do something, but nothing happened. And week after week, we waited and then it became month after month. And nine months later, I'm getting worried and I'm saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. We're kind of at a crossroads here. I have to come up with somebody soon or I'm in trouble. And so finally, uh, I was at a church in the upper peninsula of Michigan. And um, the church was a lot like this. There was a center aisle there and there are pews. And I just got off the platform. I just finished speaking and I was stepping down and beginning to walk up the center aisle. And I just glanced up and I saw a woman sitting on the end of the pew. And I looked at her and the Lord spoke to me. And he said to me, ask her to come to Cambodia and help you. And so I walked over to her, and I, I, I had all these ideas of what it, she, who she's going to be. And I said to her, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? And she said, well, I'm, her name was Cheryl. She said, I've been taking care of a girl named Debbie for the last 18 years. Debbie was uh, quadriplegic. Uh, she could not move her arms and legs. She'd been in a wheelchair most of her life. And, um, her, she had a disease where her bones seized up and fused. And so she said, uh, Debbie died suddenly about six months ago. And she said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what God wants me to do. And I said, would you consider coming to Cambodia to help me? Now, as I'm saying that, I thought to myself, what a stupid thing to ask this lady. She's not even a teacher. Why did I even just say that? But I felt dumb enough. That I just didn't know what else to do. And I just did what God asked me to do. And she said, well, I'll pray about it. And I thought, well, don't pray too hard. That's what I was really thinking. I'd be honest with you. And so I didn't think anything of it. And about uh, the next day, I got a phone call from her. And she said to me, Mark, uh," she said, "Uh, last night I was at church. They have an evening service there. And she said, one of my best friends came up to me and said to me, I have a word from the Lord for you. And she said, God told me to tell you that he has presented an opportunity for you and you're supposed to take it. And so she said, I'm in what do I have to do. And so I'm kind of like half and believe, okay, I guess this is who God wants and I don't know what to do, but I said, go online, fill out the application and send it in. And so a couple of ways went by and, and she called me back and she said to me, um, I have a problem. I said, what's the problem? She said on the application, it says I cannot have a debt that requires that I have to pay it back more than $100 a month. She said, I owe $32,000 in credit card bills. What? My first thought was, I screwed up. No, why did I ask this woman to come to Cambodia? It's too late now. I can't get out of it. She's in debt up to her eyeballs. No, I I, I said, why have I done this to myself? I was kicking myself. And I said, well, what happened? I mean, not everybody can get out of debt $32,000, especially when you're single. I mean, that's a whopper. And it was really interesting. She said, Debbie and I both got uh, money from the government. Debbie got a stipend, and she got paid to take care of Debbie. And she said, we spent our whole life in this old dumpy apartment. And so we decided we're going to fix it up. We bought furniture. We bought carpet. uh, Hired a carpenter to put in new cupboards. It came to $32,000. We were working with the bank to get a loan. And before we could finalize the process, Baby died. She said, I got stuck with the whole thing. I said, I don't know what to do, but somehow God's in this. Just fill it out and send it in anyway. A week later, I flew to California to speak at a fundraiser where a bunch of men had rented pebble beach. You golfers out there. know pebble beach is an insanely expensive place to golf. Well, this particular day, you had to pay $5,000 to golf that day, and all the money went to missions. And these men decided that they were going to rent Pebble Beach for the sake of raising money for missions. And I'm the speaker. And so I showed up, and just before I got up on the platform, a man came up to me, I've never seen him in my life, and he walked up to me, and he introduced himself. He said to me, Hi, Mark, how you doing? And he said to me, Mark, what do you need? And before I could even answer him, no, I don't need anything, The Lord spoke to me and said, you need Cheryl to come to help you in Cambodia. And I said, well, this is going to sound really weird, but I sort of do have a need, but it's really not for me. It's for Cheryl, and and she has this huge debt, but it's really not her problem. And it sounded so weird, I couldn't believe the guy even believed me. And when I shared the whole story with him, he handed me his business card, and he said to me, Mark, here's my card. You call my secretary, tell her how much money you need and where to send it. okay. (laughs) I stuck the card in my pocket and I even forgot about it. And it was not until a day or so later that I remembered it. And when I got home, I called her and I remember talking to the secretary and I said, I know this sounds crazy and I feel so stupid for even calling you, but your boss who, I said, you don't even know me, but your boss gave me his business card and told me to tell you how much money I need and where to send it. She said, oh, he does that all the time. How much money do you need, Mark? And he paid off her entire debt. She's broke. She still has no money. She's just not in debt anymore. No money to go to the mission field. You have got to raise your own support. Three weeks later, two weeks later, I forget what it was. I was down in Florida, and uh, there's a big church down there, and I was I was just getting ready to speak. And just before I got up, uh, one of the associate pastors pulled me aside and he said to me, "Uh, Mark, um, he said, "Uh, you're going to Cambodia. He said, you know, a Cheryl, she she wrote us a letter and said she's going to be going to help a missionary in Cambodia. And I said, yeah, this Cheryl. And he said, yeah, that's her. I said, how do you know her? He said, this is her home church. Every winter she brings Debbie down here because the snow is so deep in the UP. They come down here for the winter and they always brought Debbie right to the front of the church. Everybody saw her wheelchair. Everybody knows Cheryl. Everybody knows her. And they said, um, yeah, this is her home church. And I said, would you give the offering today for her? He said, sure. And he gave her the entire offering. It was $8,000. She went from minus $32,000 in the hole to 8000 in the black within a month. Only God could do that. It went against everything I ever expected God to do. I was in a church in Jackson, Mississippi, not long ago. And the uh, at the end of the service, we had a prayer time. We were praying for people up front. There was a, it was a big church, and there was a lot of people. And as they began to filter out, and I began to work my way over to the side, there was a young woman who stood over here by herself. And as I walked over here over there to talk to her, And I said, what would you like me to pray for you? And then she told me this story. She said, my husband killed himself. And my son doesn't know what to think. And she said, "I, I I don't know what to do. And I didn't have the slightest idea how to pray for her. I'm at a complete loss. How do I understand her grief? And as I walked over to her and I placed my hands on her and began to pray for her, God opened my mind. And suddenly I understood and knew things about her that only she would know. I don't understand it, it just happened. And as it came out of my mouth, I prayed for her, stuff that was so specific to her that only she would know it. And when when I finished praying for her, I opened my eyes and there was another man standing behind her, maybe three or four feet. And um, I just glanced up and saw him, and then I gave her a hug, said, God bless you, and then I left. The next day, I was with my friend who had hosted me for this trip. We were driving down the tr- road in his truck, and as we were driving down the road, he, uh, he got a phone call. And when he answered the phone, he spoke for a minute, and then he leaned over and he handed me the phone. He said, Mark, it's for you. And I, I grabbed the phone. And I said, yeah, and it was the man who was standing behind her. And he said, the woman you prayed for was my girlfriend. And he said, when we got into the car and my girlfriend closed the door, she said to me, what did you tell that man about me? He said, what are you talking about? She said, he knew things about me that no one knew. What did you say to him? You must have talked to him. He said, I don't even know Mark. I've never talked to him in my life. In fact, he told me, he said, Mark, we actually missed the service. We went to the wrong church. And he said, by the time we got to the church, we finally found it. He said that service had ended and you were only praying for people. And it was at the very end that she just showed up and decided to walk to the pulpit, walk to the front. That was not me. That was God. I had nothing to offer that woman. But God did the miraculous. Acts 2.17 says this. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Peter quoted that. It's actually a prophecy out of Joel. He said, in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit. And he says, this is that time. Now, it's interesting. When that time came and... The gifts of the Holy Spirit were where the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit came. It was kind of an interesting time because Jesus said, hey, this is going to happen. And he said, wait, I want you to wait. The the New Testament or the uh, King James says, Terry, wait until my Holy Spirit comes. It will give you power. It will give you boldness. You will be my witnesses. And when it came, now you've got to remember the disciples had spent a lot of time with Jesus. They knew him. There there was nobody that knew him better other than God the Father. They knew him. And so imagine what it was like as they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. They had expectations. They were anticipating something good happening. Besides, Jesus said it's going to happen. And it didn't happen quickly. It, It took time. But when the time came, you can imagine what was going through their mind. I, you know, envision P- Peter talking to John. What do you think's going to happen when the Holy Spirit comes? Well, I, it'll be like the doves. Remember how the dove came to Jesus? Well, this time it'll be lots of doves floating around and all in and on her shoulder. We'll all have doves. And John was like, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Remember when we were on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses, Elijah's there. And then God, the spirit of God, the father came and a cloud came down, a mist and a loud, a bright uh, light. That's what's going to happen. That you can just imagine. They had, you know, they're having expectations. Nothing of that sort happened. A loud rushing wind, tongues of fire, speaking in tongues in a language they don't even understand put them in a position that not only did they understand, but the people who were watching them thought they're crazy. You people are crazy. You're drunk. It's ironic that when God does the miraculous, oftentimes we feel stupid. I can't tell you how many times that I've experienced the miraculous. I could tell you stories for hours, but not once was I comfortable saying, "Oh, this is going to be a walk in the park. I know what God's going to do. Never. The truth was, I had to put my trust in God and say, Lord, there's no plan B. If you don't show up, we're in trouble. That's the way it is. And it's interesting how God chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. I don't know why God does that. He chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. Acts 8.14 When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that it didn't even happen the same way. No tongues of fire, no rushing wind. God chose. There was not what they anticipated even here. These are believers. These are people who know the Lord. You recognize that when you know the Lord, God's spirit lives in you. You are marked for the day of salvation. The spirit of God dwells in you. He said, these are believers. But he said, have you. Received the Holy Spirit. He laid hands on them, a separate event, and he prayed for them. Did not coach them. It doesn't even explain how long he prayed for them. He just prayed for them until they received what they wanted. Acts 19 says it differently, just a little bit. It says, Paul arrived in Ephesus. I'm going to paraphrase this. He found some believers. Actually, he found some disciples. And he said, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, I, my experience has been I have seen it before where people have, re- the instant that they got saved, they got something other than the Spirit of salvation. Boom. They started speaking in tongues. I've had people that were uh, all sorts of manifestations. I've seen the different things. I've seen it where it took time, where it was months before it happened. I've seen both. But I want you to understand it's a separate event. Paul did not explain, even in Acts 19, to the new believers. Okay, do this, do this, do this, do this. He didn't explain anything. Have you received it? No. Okay. I'm going to lay hands on you, and we're going to pray for you. No coaching? This is just what we're going to do. Luke 10 says this. And this was when Jesus was praying to the Father. He said, you have hidden hidden these things from the learned and the wise and revealed them to children. I do not understand it. It's just the way that God has done it. I want you to understand something. Walking by faith is the spice of life, but it is not easy. God will put you in a situation where you don't have all the answers and you learn to just trust him anyway. I have learned that when you want to receive from the Lord, you need a humble heart, a willing heart, an empty, uh, and an empty mind. <laughs> a submitted, uh, willing to submit yourself to what God wants to give you. I'm not making any sense. Let me say that again. A willing heart, a willing mind, and a willing tongue. That's it. We just say, okay, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. We don't understand it. It, Our expectations don't seem to fit in with what God wants to do. We just do it anyway. Does that make sense? Stand with me, please, if you would. Now, we're going to do something different. Pastor alluded to it. I'm going to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge you. I want you to receive from the Lord. I want you to receive every gift that God has for you. You see, I want you to be able to say to your children and their children and share about the things that God has done in your life. I want you to have a testimony about the miraculous, about the miracles that God has allowed you to be a part of. You know, it's interesting when the children of Israel saw God do something incredible, he would say, gather these stones and make a monument to remind the next generation of what I have done. I want my sons to be able to say to me, to say to their friends or their children, my dad was a man of God. And he he was a part of the things that God did and the miraculous happened. And he was a part of it. I want my sons to have that testimony. And I want their children to be able to say, my grandfather was a great man of God. And these things happen and my, my grandfather experienced it. And I want that for you. And God wants that for you. He wants to pour out his spirit upon you in a way that you have never experienced. And so my challenge to you this morning is this, and though it may, it may make you uncomfortable, if you would like to ask of the Lord and have people come, and pray with you specifically for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the way that Paul talked about and Peter. All Paul said was, have you received since you believed? I'm talking about different than salvation. This is a different experience. Have you received since you believed? Many of you will not understand this. The truth is, I don't understand it. I just know this is what God said to do, and we do it. If you would like to be willing to step out in faith in this area, I would like you to come and stand at the, I'm sorry, and kneel at the altar. I would like you to spend some time with the Lord. And myself, pastors, and others will come and lay hands on you and pray for you to receive the gifts that God has for you. And so I want to challenge you for that this morning. If you would like to come, I would like to challenge you to come now. You need to understand a couple things. Walking by faith is not a comfortable experience. It is uncomfortable. You will be put in situations where you will be uncomfortable. It's okay. Now, let me say this: You do not. I don't want to uh, manipulate you. I don't want to make you feel guilty. I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable in any way. You're not. You don't have to come up here. If you would like to spend some time with the Lord. Welcome to do that. Also, I'm going to dismiss the service. We're going to just spend time in worship. If you need to leave for whatever reason, you're welcome to go out to the fellowship hall. But other than that, we're going to spend some time. I specifically purposely quit early this morning because I want us to tarry. I want to wait and spend time with God at this altar. This isn't the McDonald's drive up service we just whip out our money and get something in return and we're out the door in four or five minutes. I want you to understand that we need to tarry and spend time with God because it is the spirit of the Lord that makes things happen, not me. And so if you would like to be a part of this, you are welcome to do that. But Other than that, I just want to encourage you. God bless you.